Years ago at my former church, I had the privilege of leading the drug and alcohol rehabilitation outreach ministry. And that, that involved overseeing a group of men who were ministering to California state, uh, state-sponsored rehab facilities by leading Sunday church services and weekly Bible studies. And, and as you might expect, once in a, in a while, there would be someone who would hear the gospel and turn to Christ. One such gentleman was named David, and David had, had grown, up, grown up in Boston. He had a, this thick box, Boston accent. He was a tall guy, 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, he, he played basketball in a, a small college, but sometime later, David had fallen headfirst into a destructive lifestyle of drugs and alcohol. He was living on the streets when a volunteer from a, a homeless organization had gone out to the abandoned house that David was living in. And the volunteer, he, he offered him a bed, a, a clean shower, some food, and a pathway to sobriety. And as, as David described it, he kind of sat there for a moment and thought about it, and he was kind of torn. Did he want to stay in the way he was living? Did he want to go? And it was a big, it was a big huge uh, moment for him. And he, uh, and he said yes. He went there, he reluctantly agreed, and, and that led him to the rehab center where my church was ministering uh, to. Uh, David was at, was, at every, he was at every Bible study. He was at every uh, Sunday morning Lord's Day service. He had worked through, he would give all the men there this uh, fundamental of the faith workbook, and, uh, and as a reward, if they had finished it, we would give them a MacArthur study Bible, and, and David uh, completed that, he went through that, and and it was during this time he, he turned to the Lord in faith and repentance and, and was saved from his sin. And as he was about to complete his three-month stint at the facility, we always give the men who are interested a, a list of good churches to go to. And we gave him a church, a church in his area at his halfway house that he was going to spend some time there. And he said that while, while he was at the halfway house, the, he, he, he told his, his, the other guys there about the church, and they said, there's no church there. The, 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 the address is wrong. And he said, hmm, and he scratched his head. And he said, well, I'm going to give it a chance. And so uh, he had, there was a little BMX bike, you know, that he had. And, and just imagine this six, seven guy, and he got on that bike, and it was about seven miles away, and he was riding into the wind. And lo and behold, the, the church was there, um, pastored by one of our, our professors, uh, uh, Brian Murphy. And, and he uh, began, began, began uh, attending. Uh, he was baptized of, after. And I had the privilege of going to his baptism service. And it was there after we had lunch. And it was there where I met his mother from Boston and, and his father-in-law. And his mother was this you know, five-foot, you know, 100-pound elderly woman in her 60s, also with a, a thick Boston accent. And, and she had flown across country to see her son get baptized uh, nervously wondering. I remember at lunch she said, I hope, I hope this is really true. I hope he, he's really changed. And because it wasn't the first time to Los, Angel to Los Angeles to see her son. Uh, he told me that uh, as he was living on the streets, he told me of how his, his mother would make uh, frequent trips from Boston to Los, Los Angeles to look, for, to look for her son lost in the streets of Skid Row. And if you've ever been to Skid Row, you would know it's like a scene from an apocalyptic movie, and the 
It's littered with cardboard boxes and tents, and the streets are just crowded, packed with, I mean, at least when I was there, packed with strung out drug addicts. And I mean, it's a, it's a scary place to, to be in. So you can imagine uh, this place where this frail uh, elderly lady from Boston would go up and down the dark alleys looking for her lost son. The same baby boy she used to hold and comfort and and change diapers for and make macaroni and cheese for. The same smiling, laughing baby boy she used to enjoy so much. Now a junkie living on Skid Row. And she was there risking her life to rescue her son. It It was just simply a beautiful story of a of a mother's love on a rescue mission to, ch- to save her precious child who had gotten horribly lost in his sin. Today's verse as James paints a, a picture of love all believers must have for each other, a kind of love that, that, that mirrors the love of a mother looking for her son on the streets. And so let me read the verses that we're going to be examining this morning, James chapter 5, if you can open your Bibles to James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. And James uh, writes this, My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I propose a thesis of James to you throughout our study of this book. And that thesis was the pursuit of a wholehearted Christianity. The new covenant gives believers the power to love the Lord with all of their hearts. And this wholehearted love for Jesus Christ will then, James says, will translate itself into action. There will be tangible fruit where all can see when there is regeneration and new life in a born-again believer. True saving faith bears the, the good fruit of good works in abundance. When there is heavenly wisdom from above, it will make a tangible difference in your life and in the lives of others. The new heart will endure trials. The new heart will come with a new mouth and vocabulary. It will change the way you communicate and talk to people. This wholehearted love for God will show itself genuine by caring for the widows and orphans of the church. It will seek peace within the church. It will be full of God-centered ambition. The new heart is patient. The new heart is filled with God's Spirit that demonstrates a a radical, a new approach to life. The new heart is, is humble. The new heart draws near to God. And the new heart is patient. So in light of this, how this wholehearted Christianity manifests tangible fruit and produces good works, is, is, it, is it any wonder then that there, are, that there are more imperative verbs percentage-wise in James than in any other New Testament book? And if that's the case, then it makes perfect sense that James would end the way he does in these last two verses with another imperative. In light of the book's emphasis on the necessary evidence of a whole heart for God, James ends with the, the, the Mount Everest of a wholehearted love for Christ, and it's this, a wholehearted 
love for other believers. Verses 19 and 20 describe a wholehearted love for believers like, like nothing else. You see, if you love God with all your heart, then you will love your neighbor as yourself. One cannot be true without the other. This is how James ends. If you love God with all your heart, then you will love each other with all your heart. But what does that love look like? What is the, the shining example of this kind of love for each other? What marks this love of one another like no other? Well, we can all say that we love each other. We can do things for people that, uh, that appear to be loved, but there's one action of love that really shines bright with luminous authenticity. There's one particular manifestation of love that isn't, that isn't easy to do. It's not common. It's not, it's not something that requires a, a minimal amount of effort. And so this morning, James will tell us that true love is a, is a rescue mission. True love is a rescue mission. True love is hard. It's dangerous. It, it takes risks at the expense of the self. But in the end, it accomplishes a, a magnificent work. So this morning, we'll consider the greatest, the greatest exemplar of true-hearted love for each other, saving sinners from their sin. Saving sinners from, this, from their sin. And with that said, I, I'm, let me give you two points in the, at the start, and they are the greatest danger, verse 19, and the greatest privilege, verse 20. The greatest danger, verse 19, and the greatest privilege, verse 20. The greatest threat to a believer, they're, they're, not, they're not found in the physical, the physical components or sociological uh, categories. Uh, the biggest threats of, for a believer are, are spiritual and theological that our physical lives are, are, are fallen bodies. They're, they're like a vapor. They are here today and gone tomorrow. But our, but our spiritual lives, on the other hand, they are eternal. They never end. No matter how hard you try, our bodies will waste away. They're not that important. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore we do not lose heart, but, through our, but, though, but though our outer man is decaying, Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Paul says the outer man is decaying. And he was referring to the normal aging process. Paul is not an old man when he writes these words. But because of gospel ministry, in the effort and pace that he was keeping, plus the beatings and attacks he was enduring for the gospel, Paul was speeding up that process of physical decay. I mean, he could have lived longer than he did if he had just played it safe because, because the eternal was, was so much weightier than the physical for the apostle. And because of that, Paul was getting closer to physical death much sooner than necessary. And so he writes these words. And then he says, right after verse 16, in the next two verses, he says, for our momentary light affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That whatever he would lose in his earthly body and his life, it, it, it would not compare to the eternal weight of glory for the kind of, the, for the life that he was living. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Timothy 4.8. He says, For bodily training is only of, of little profit, but godliness 
is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Uh, uh, bodily training is of little profit because it, it's, only, it's only relevant in the present life. But godliness is pro- profitable because it, it's, it's good for you now and it's good for you tomorrow and in eternity. That diet and exercise are, are limited in, 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 in its extent and duration of relevance, but godliness is above all. It is profitable for all things. Godliness is valuable in time and in eternity. In other words, we don't want to let the physical and the temporal get in the way of the spiritual and eternal. That your personal godliness and the godliness of your brothers and sisters must, in Christ must always be your first priority. Don't let your career, your health, your lifestyle get in the way of your spiritual well-being and the spiritual well-being of your church family. Turn with me to Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 25 to 34. Before verse 25, he, he spoke of the treasures waiting for us in heaven. So he says in verse 25, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor not for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I, yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and, and tomorrow, is thrown into the, fu- in, into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but first seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus says here that even the most basic issues of life are not the most important things. This isn't the biggest danger we face. It isn't the biggest danger for our children. It isn't the biggest threat to the the fellow members of your church. That, That rather the pursuit of God's kingdom agenda and his righteousness proclaimed through the gospel, this is what is most important. That the highest concern that we should have for each other is not our physical welfare and, and our physical well-being is important as, 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 the, is, as that is, but our spiritual welfare. And so this is why we need to remain so vigilant and closely connected to, to each other within the church. This is why we need to be the closest of friends here because the spiritual dangers that we face, they're not as obvious as the physical threats. When you get sick or when you lose your job 
it's very obvious. Everybody knows that. It's very public. But when you're struggling spiritually, that's a lot easier to hide. And for, for, for whatever reason, we, we often try to hide the fact. When somebody is in, in unrepentant sin, when a, when a marriage is struggling, it's not really obvious to everybody in the room. And for, for many, uh, the first instinct is to, to keep that kind of reality hush-hush. When somebody is heading off into theological heresy because of some book they read or because of some wonky podcast they listen to, nobody really knows it until it's too late unless the relationships within a local church are close. Unless these relationships are honest and open and vulnerable and constant. And this is why we need to physically gather together with the saints as much as possible. This is why we need to be always growing in our friendships with each other here, where we're always opening up and we're sharing what's on our heart, and we're, we're being vulnerable to one another. This is why we need to spend lots of time present together in person. Because you can't do church online. You can listen to a sermon online, sure, but you can't do church online because if we rarely meet together in person, it makes it almost impossible for us to keep each other spiritually accountable. We really need to know each other in order for us to protect each other from the greatest danger a Christian can encounter, the danger of straying from the truth, according to verse 19. Look at James 5.19. James says, My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back. James begins verse 19, 19 with the words, If any. If any. You see, physical, material, temporal dangers are, are more likely to happen to some people than others, depending on your your educational background or your socioeconomic status, some people are prone to temporal threats than others. If you're a, an expert in computer program, programming and you're a reasonably hard worker, the likelihood, likelihood of, of poverty is, is low. But spiritual danger is an equal opportunity employer. Anyone, no matter who you are, if you're a pastor or a theology professor, or even if you're a, a new believer, wherever you are in that, in that, in that, in that spectrum of, of, of faith, no matter, no, no matter what, we, we are all naturally and equally prone to spiritual dangers. We are all susceptible to neglecting our Bible reading for long periods of time. We are all tempted to give up on prayer. We can all get discouraged about the the life within the church, and we begin to live most of our, the most important part of our lives outside the corporate life of our local churches. No matter how long you've been in the faith, tomorrow can be the day when you fall headlong into the worst kinds of sin because you and I all possess in equal measure the sinful flesh, flesh principle in our person. No one has less of a fallen nature than others, even as born-again believers. We all have the same degree of this sinful flesh 
dynamic working and working within our persons. And so James, he continues in verse 19, he says, if any, if any among you strays from the truth, the pictures of a sheep wandering away from the flock and from the shepherd, Peter uses the word and metaphor to describe our condition before God saved us in 1 Peter 2.25. Peter says, for you were continually, continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The word strays is often used to, to connote a, a serious, a, a severe kind of wavering. The way it's being used here means some kind of apostasy from the gospel. A professing believer is wholesale, flagrantly denying the gospel, either in doctrine or in behavior. It could be somebody denying the Trinity, could be rejecting the deity of Christ or repudiating the doctrine of justification by faith. At, Shepherd Con at Shepherd's Conference this uh, uh, past March, there was a, there was a group from uh, Colorado, a church, and they were kind of going around and passing out cards and, and uh, challenging anybody to, uh, to come to their church. They were ch challenging one of the staff of Grace, Grace Church to come to their church in Colorado to, to challenge them on the doctrine of justification by faith. And uh, I said, if you, anybody can come there and, 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 and tell us and convince us that the doctrine of justification by faith is true, we'll give you $10,000. And the guy who was the pastor, he was sent out by a church, I believe, in Michigan, a faithful church. And he was that part of that church for like 20, 25 years. And when he, when he got out there, he, he, he introduced this heretical doctrine of works. And the, his former church had to just, just publicly repudiate him. You see, it can happen to anybody. So it could be uh, um, somebody like that. It can be somebody here in this scandalous, unrepented sin. It could be adultery, an unbiblical divorce. In other words, the kind of strain from the truth James is talking about in verse 19 is, is some sort of this Radical denial of the gospel in doctrine or in, or in action, in word or in deed. And the Greek word behind the word strays, um, it's used eight times in Revelation. Every time in Revelation, it's, it's translated deceived or, or seduced. And it's referring to satanic deception. And so, no doubt, there's, Satan is playing some kind of role in this strain from the truth that James is talking about here. But what, what motivates somebody? What motivates somebody who professes the name of Christ to stray from the truth? Well, the Lord gives us a few reasons in Matthew 13. Go back to Matthew 13, and the Lord gives us a few reasons why people stray from the truth. I remember when I first got saved, the associate pastor, he, he uh, sat down with me, and I'll never forget, he, he went through this passage with me. He says, hey, hey, George, I want to I I show you something about the kind of reactions, the kind of receptions some people uh, display to the gospel. Matthew 13, uh, verses 1 through 9. Go to Matthew 13, 1 through 9. And, and Jesus, he, was, uh, he begins to speak a parable. He says in verse 3, 
Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the, the birds came and ate them up, and others fell in the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out, and others fell in the good soil and were yielding a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. What, is, what does the Lord mean in this parable? Well, he interprets the parable, the parable for us in, in verse 18. Uh, verse 18, um, go there. He, he says, um, hear then the parable of the, so- the, the, the sower, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. So he gives three reasons why people who hear the gospel reject it and stray from the truth. And the first reason is um, he gives in verse 19. He says that, that there are some people in the church who never understand the gospel in the first place. And the, and the ignorance isn't intellectual. There's a spiritual component. This person may be somebody who grew up in the church all their lives, and they, and they hear the gospel over and over again, but each time it's heard, Satan hardens the church attendee's heart. That over and over again, Satan hardens the heart's ability to receive the truth in the, in the first place. Uh, this happens to my, my boy all the time. I, I tell him the gospel and over and over again, and I say, hey, 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 Paul, what's the gospel? They're like, what? Well, what is it? You see, there's, there's this spiritual component, a person's sin working with uh, Satan's power, uh, refuses to believe, understand and receive Christ. The second reason the seed never grows deeply enough is verses uh, 20 and 21. There's a second uh, reason why people reject uh, Christ, and it's because, as I said, it, the, the seed it never, the roots, the, the roots never grow deep enough. He says, and the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, the rocky places, this is the man who he hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in, in, in himself, because, but it is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. See, the root doesn't go deep enough, and so when it gets hard for the person as he displays, as he professes his faith in Christ, uh, he falls away. As soon as he hears the gospel with joy, but as soon as persecution comes, he strays from the truth. You see, for James's initial audience, affliction and persecution was the norm for his readers, and that's why James began the letter exhorting his, the, the, the people he was writing to to count it all joy when trials come. He, he was saying, in effect, don't, don't stray from the truth in these trials. Rejoice instead. Draw near to God instead. That's why James said to us, be patient like the farmer, be patient like the prophets, be patient like Job when the rich and powerful oppress you for your faith. There's a third reason people stray from the truth, Jesus says, and that's given in verse 22. Jesus says, and the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, and the worry of the world, of the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word, 
and it becomes unfruitful. See, this third reason is that they, 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 they've never prioritized Christ above all else in the world. They initially hear the word, they make a profession of faith, but the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, they combine together to choke out the kind of life that the gospel produces. And that's why James, over and over again in the book, he warned the wealthy in the church in chapter 1, if you remember, to avoid boasting in their wealth. He said the rich were like flowers in the hot heat of the summer, there in the morning shriveled up at night. This is why James warned believers, those who were wealthy merchants, not to make plans without God in the center of those plans. Now back to James 5.19. These are all the reasons, these are all the reasons why we, why, why, why professing believers stray from the truth. He continues in verse 19, and he says, in verse 19, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back. Notice, he says, one turns him back. He says in verse 19 that this responsibility of restoring sinning, unrepentant believers is not the work of the elders alone. It's not the work of the pastor. You can't just say, well, he's going to do it. The guy up there, let him do the hard work. No, he says, if anyone... If, if one turns him back, uh, this is a concern for everybody in the church. And notice in verse 19, it's not even a command. It's not an exhortation. James is assuming, he's assuming that this is happening. That, that restoring the wandering sheep is, is a non-negotiable of true love for each other in the body of Christ. There is something horribly wrong with you if you have no strong desire to bring sinners back to God. I mean, if there's just no desire, and you know Sally or Dave is out there, and he was among us, and he's just sinning wantonly and undiscriminately, and, and you have no desire to turn him back, well, there is something deeply shallow about that kind of faith. Verse 19 is... One of the many reasons why a professing believer must stop attending a church and become a member of a church, to join a church. Because when you join a local church and become a member of a local church, you're receiving the assurance that if you were to ever stray from the, the truth, a real danger, that being a member of a local church would ensure that the entire church body come after you. See, when you become a member of a local church, verse 19 is one of the best kind of spiritual hazard insurance policies you could ever have as a believer. See, we need this hazard insurance because the danger of strain is there every day. We, we need this kind of accountability. We need this kind of protection that God gives, with, gives us within the confines of membership in a local church. You see, when I become a member of a church, among, among many other privileges, I am officially telling all the, other member the, uh, all the other members of the church that if I ever stray from the truth, you are commanded by God to come looking for me. 
If I ever get lost, you have to come looking for me. You have to pray for me. You have to fast for me. You, you have to come to my house and knock on my front door. You have to plead with my soul to cry for me. You have to grab me and shake me and cry out, what are you doing with your life? You have to say to me these words, how could you, how could you betray the one who died for you? How could you turn your back on Jesus? See, you have to beg me to repent from my, my apostasy and per, turn back to the shepherd of my soul. See, in local church membership, I am officially telling you that if any one of you ever stray from the truth, that I give you my word that I will do the same for you. See, this is local church membership. This is the privilege of that. This is true love that I expect from you to me, that you should expect from me to you. See, verse 19 is our responsibility to each other if any one of us ever strays from the truth. Well, we consider the greatest danger for a Christian in verse 19. And next in verse 20, we will examine the greatest privilege, verse 20. The greatest privilege, verse 20. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. In verse 20, the emphasis is on the infinite value of the soul. The infinite value of the soul. The ministry of restoring a professing believers wandering is of the highest kind of importance because you are possibly rescuing somebody who might have thought he or she was saved from hell, but never really was. James holds out the possibility that the person who has strayed from the truth was never really a true believer in the first place. He assumes that our rescue mission includes the reminding of people, of the, the reminding of the, uh, the repreaching of the gospel, who were once part of the assembly of the saints, who, who, who may have been so close to salvation and as this person hears the gospel one more time, he or she finally believes in Christ and is genuinely converted this time. There are some in the church who are, who are inches away from coming to Christ. And over time, they fall away from a Christ they never truly embrace. So when we look for them, when we seek to rescue them with the message of the gospel, with the reminder of Christ's death and resurrection, sometimes when they return, they return this time as bona fide converted believers. Sometimes if you have friends who have, who have strayed from the faith, they'll, they'll either say two things. They'll say, I never was a believer in the first place, and somebody came to me and shared the gospel, and I repented, and I, and I came back to church. Or they'll say, I, I was really strained. I, I was a believer, but in rebellion. And, and James says that, uh, there, that's a, that's, that the possibility of, of the first example is, is a common one. You see, to take part in this rescue mission for a lot of times is to to be able to have played a role in the conversion of a hypocrite who has become a genuine believer. 
And that is the, the highest privilege that you could ever receive from God to, to be a part of this kind of ministry, this kind of work. What's interesting in verse 20 is that the one who has sought out the strange sheep is spoken of as doing what in reality only God can do. In other words, God works through our efforts and he graciously credits us with the work God ultimately does. He says, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. God does that. But he says, when you do that, when you're part of that work, I'm like, I'm like giving you this, this kind of honor, this kind of privilege to be a part of the greatest work you could ever do. You see, if salvation of sinners is God's greatest work in the universe, then being a, an instrument of salvation in the hand of God is the greatest work a Christian could ever be a part of. Let's say one day you had in some way stopped a school bus of children from running off a cliff. You would be considered a hero for saving what is so precious to parents and non-parents alike. You might be on the nightly news. You might get a, a medal from the mayor. In a greater way, so is the work of salvation described in verse 20. Because the soul of a person is of an infinite value. To save somebody from perishing in hell forever is to, have this, is to make an eternal difference in God's kingdom. This is a great honor. This is the greatest privilege a believer can have in, in ministry in the, in the local church. When you convince someone who is strained from the truth to turn back, to Christ in genuine confession and faith, you become an instrument of God covering, verse 20 says, a multitude of sins. That latter half of verse 20 is a, is a quote from Proverbs 10.12, and, and this is the, the actual verse in Proverbs 10.12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Uh, this is a, a great description of forgiveness. It's a forgiveness for all transgressions, a multitude of sins. And, and, and the Proverbs, uh, Solomon says, love covers all transgressions. In other words, the source is the love of God found fueling the love of a believer working to restore a lost soul. To neglect or to be indifferent of your duty and responsibility to seek out those who have strayed from the truth can reveal so much about your heart for God and your faith in, in Christ. It can reveal, number one, a lack of faith that you really believe in heaven or hell. Do you really believe in heaven or hell? Or is it something that you were taught by your parents and you're just kind of passively tolerating the idea in your mind? When I first came to Christ, as the Lord was drawing me to himself, I, that was one of the questions I was asking myself. I said, I was thinking, do I really believe in heaven or hell? Do I really believe in this stuff? Because if I do, it, it's going to make the, the world of difference in where I go from now. T to be indifferent to the responsibility of seeking out those who have strayed from the flock it can reveal a lack of conviction about the seriousness of sin, that sin is real, that sin is offensive to God, and that never repented of, it leads to eternal death. And this means we should always be 
deeply concerned that there is indeed an eternal death to which the way of sin leads to. And that concern should motivate, motivate us to deal with sin in our lives and the lives of others. To be indifferent to our responsibility to restore those who have strayed, it can reveal just a, a shallowness of love for other believers in your church family. I mean, if you knew uh, the person next to you was about to drink a cup of poison, would you say something? Or would you tell yourself, oh, that's his choice. Oh, he's an adult. I'm not going to interfere with the free choices of an adult. No. Love stretches out further than human convention and says human choice isn't the final authority. God's word is. Whatever is true, whatever is dignified, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is of excellence and worthy of praise, that has a higher authority than the sinful choices of the people we love. In your Christian life, what James is describing will happen in your church. Sooner or later, those among us will stray from the truth. It's happened at our church multiple times already. It will happen multiple times in the future. James says we're not allowed to ignore those people. We're not allowed to push it off to the pastor. We're not allowed to live in our comfortable spaces of indifference and neglect for others. that, That rescuing sinners from the errors of of their way, it displays a wholehearted love for Christ and true love for our brothers and sisters in our local church, like no other, because it's, it's hard to do. That the effort to restore somebody in sin is, is difficult. The, the conversations are awkward and uncomfortable. The pushback, the insults, the hostility from the one we're trying to rescue can be so intense and hurtful that brother, these Professing believers locked into their sin, they're blinded by their sin, and they can, they can treat you in the worst of ways. It is the hardest kind of work. But for those of us who know the extent of Christ's sacrifice made on our behalf, when we treated God a thousand times worse, we will do whatever it takes to restore a sinning brother or sister, like a brave mother looking for her son lost in the streets of Skid Row. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray for a heart of love, for a genuine heart of love for one another, that so often we are kind of fall into the erroneous thinking that we're just responsible for our own spiritual lives. That our growth and our fight against sin, it's it's just about me. But James reminds us that if you're a member of the body of Christ, that it doesn't stop with just us, doesn't stop with just me and the individual. That same kind of spiritual concern applies to every member in our local church bodies. And so, Lord, 
set us up in a position where we can do something, where we can nip the strain hard in the bud because we, we have those kinds of relationships. When we see strain in, in doctrine or in life, we can speak up because we, we, have, we have these close friendships, because we have these close relationships, because we're all we're sharing our hearts, we're, we're taking the time, we, we, we know the importance of, of being faithful to the Lord and the role that every member of the local body plays in that faithfulness. And so, Lord, if that ever happens for us, we pray that for every member here that we would have the courage to, to go looking for the lost sinner, take part in the, the greatest work possibly uh, when somebody turns to Christ and we can play a role in that. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name.